0: Hello and welcome to Small Town Spooky, the podcast broadcast from a spooky small town near you. I'm Renee, and I'll be your sonic psychopomp, leading you into the legends, folklore, and spooky stories from small towns all over the world. Small Town Spooky is part history, part mystery, and 100% oddity. So get curious, get creepy, and join the ghoul gang as we investigate the obscure horrors of our hometowns. Hey Google gang! Welcome back to Small Town Spooky, the podcast delivering the chills, the thrills, and the very upsetting historical context of your favorite small town ghost stories. It's so good to be back, thanks for sticking around with the show after last week's delay. I am hopeful it won't happen again, though sometimes the howling madness just gets to you, you know? Also, I really didn't factor in how much traveling on the holiday weekend in October would cut into my pod production time. In other news, I am truly flabbergasted by the fact that Small Town Spooky is already up to over 260 streams. Thank you so much for listening. I also want to give a special thanks to my friend Natalie for helping me sort out the pronunciations of First Nations words and names for this week's episode. I did not know there were First Nations language portals and dictionaries online with audio clips and they are incredibly helpful. Just a reminder that if you like what you hear in this episode, please leave a review on iTunes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and spread the word around about Small Town Spooky. You can also email smalltownspooky at gmail.com with your thoughts, stories, or any topics you might like to hear on the show. The poll for an upcoming episode topic on Small Town Spooky is still going on the website. You can participate at smalltownspooky.wixsite.com home until October 29th, when I'll announce the winner in the Halloween episode, which will air on October 31st. I'll link the poll on all of Smalltown Spooky's socials as well so you can find it there. The options to vote on are the haunted hostel that used to be Ottawa's jail, Brentwood College Boarding School's ghost-infested student dormitory, or you can submit your own. Really, I'm interested in covering small-town stories as long as they have a personal experience attached to them. Go to smalltownspooky.wixsite.com home to vote now. Last episode was a bit of a long one, so this week we're continuing our creepy cross-country tour of Eastern North America's haunted places with, hopefully, a bit of a shorter episode. If you've never spent any time in the wilds of Canada, I can tell you it is disorienting. As a kid, my parents used to take me and my siblings camping in Ontario's national parks, and then when we got older we'd go out on the water in the Georgian Bay area, which is on Lake Huron. Sometimes we'd camp overnight on the little islands out there. It was so remote and just seemed completely untouched by human beings. Out in the woods with the sound of the lake lapping at the edges of the island, the wind softing through the trees, the critters scrabbling around on the rocks and chittering to each other, the insects singing, and the complete absence of artificial light, it's easy to feel engulfed by the wilderness. I can't imagine what it was like for the first colonial settlers exploring parts of what would eventually become Canada, especially if they were coming from villages in areas of the UK with a milder climate. Don't even get me started about how lost those first explorers would have been without the First Nations people to guide them. But today's story is, as so many ghost stories, and let's be real, stories of colonial settlement are, about the horrors inflicted on people by other people. Now let's ghost into it. Trigger warnings for this episode include discussion of colonial settlers, exploitation and imperialism, homicide, and mentions of immolation, the death of horses by crushing, injury due to physical labor, and cannibalism. East of Maine, where the tip of North America juts into the Atlantic Ocean, New Brunswick is nestled like a cap, crowning the landmass. South of the Gaspé Peninsula, the tiny province has a view eastward of the crescent-shaped Prince Edward Island, and connects with Nova Scotia across a narrow 25-kilometer or 15-mile isthmus, where the Bay of Fundy pools to the south. You'll find most human occupants along the coast and to the south sprouting up around the many rivers crisscrossing the landscape. In the northwest the Appalachian mountain range dominates. You can hike the craggy peaks of the Appalachian Trail and peer down into the valleys. See the rolling hills carpeted in verdant emerald green forest in the summer and the flaming orange and red hues of dying leaves in the fall bracketing the deep blue waterways. New Brunswick is heavily forested, an incredibly valuable resource in terms of not only natural wildlife and game, but also trees, to the First Nations people who settled there, as well as the European colonists who came after. Spruce, fir, cedar, and white pine, as well as red and sugar maples, poplar, white and yellow birch, and beech, are just some of the species of trees available for harvest, used for canoes, camps, fishing weirs, and crafts before the advent of the lumber industry in the early 1800s. The name Appalachia likely comes from a misappropriation of an indigenous group's name for themselves. The Appalachian tribe, part of the Muskogean language group, were native to Florida, Their name may be derived from the Muscogean word apala, which means great sea, and a suffix chi, meaning those by, taken together, the people by the great sea. The Apalachee encountered a 16th century Spanish expedition under Hernando de Soto, whose company mapped the Apalachee's territory, extremely inaccurately it bears mentioning. The word Apalachee was later taken up by a French cartographer as Appalache, who illustrated a map of the region depicted by de Soto's mapmaker without actually traveling there himself. The First Nations groups inhabiting the Northeast Peninsula were actually Wolosteguawi, the Pescado Pescadomuquadi, Passamaquoddy, and Migumau. These groups were part of the Wabanaki, meaning people of the dawn or the children of the light confederacy of first nations today there are over 16,000 first nations people living in new brunswick in 16 communities across the province such as the willasagwewee matawaskie and nekwotguk in the west the Migamau oinpegi Joig in the north, El-Sibuktuk in the east, and the Heska at Skutik in the south. The Welostegwewe are an Algonquin-speaking group. Their name means the people of the beautiful river in Skijinowadowewagon, which is their language, and referred to the waterway later called St. John's, more on the origin of the English place name later. They were referred to as the Malasit by the French, who had inquired of the Migamau what the Wulasta'wui were called, and given the Mi'gum'au word for the other group, Malasit, which means progressing slowly in Migamwe, which was understood by colonial settlers to mean slow or broken talkers. The Walasawewi traditionally lived in the territory to the west, while the Peskadomuwhadi lived in the south, and much of what is today called Maine. The Mi'kmaq were most populous in the east, and settled over most of what is now New Brunswick. They are referred to as the Mi'kmaq or the Mi'kmaq in certain regions. The Mi'kmaq word for their own people is Elnu or Ennu, and the name Mi'kmaq was first ascribed to them in writing in 1676 by a French settler. According to the history set out by Daniel and Paul in We Were Not Savages, the word may be derived from Megumauach, which was understood to mean people of the red earth. Prior to colonial contact, the Mi'kmaq lived in self-governed districts in small villages with shelters made of timber and animal skins, and practiced subsistence farming, hunting game and fishing, including constructing permanent and potable fishing weirs. They liaised with other First Nations groups who were part of the Wabanaki Confederacy and migrated seasonally from the interior woodlands to the coastline. The Migamau were accomplished artisans and craftspeople, and incredibly talented seafarers who navigated the Atlantic Ocean in sea canoes. They originated a glyph-based writing system that they would inscribe on rocks or pieces of birch bark with bits of charcoal, referred to as gonguijawigagan, or suckerfish writing, in reference to the suckerfish, which would leave distinct traceries on the river bottom where it passed over the mud in search of food. When the French arrived in the early 1600s, the Mi'kmaq were welcoming and helpful. Their own legends seem to have foretold the arrival of pale-skinned men with blue eyes. Without the assistance of the Mi'kmaq, the French settlers may not have survived the winters on the coast, or at the very least, may have survived with much more difficulty. The Mi'kmaq benefited from certain technologies shared or bartered for with the colonists, But their population was vulnerable to European diseases, which some estimates say decimated up to half of their communities. The French were some of the first Europeans to appropriate land and build settlements in Mi'kmaq traditional territory. Jacques Cartier's 1534 expedition included a stop at Gespeg, called Gaspé by the French, but the first colonial settlers wouldn't establish a successful encampment in the area until some 70 years later. In the early 1600s, our old frenemy Samuel de Champlain's expedition navigated northward up to the Saint-Croix River, called Skudig in Skidgenoi de Wewagon, an appropriated land at Port Royal, south of the Bay of Fundy, on the northwest side of Nova Scotia, between Poetic Land's End, and Segabanegadi Wild Potato Area, districts of Mi'kmaq Territory. Today, the majority of the settled areas in New Brunswick are on the smaller side, with the largest city, Moncton, topping out at about 110,000 people, with the two second largest, Fredericton and St. John, closer to 60,000 people. Most other towns or settlements are between 1,000 to under 10,000 people, with many of the villages concentrated on the east and southeast coasts, and through the bottom third of the province, running along the St. Johns River. Saint John first came to be called Rivière Saint-Jean because of Samuel de Champlain who visited the mouth of the river on the feast day of Saint John, June 24th, and pronounced it thus named. Oh to have the unearned confidence of a straight white man. The summarized version of what happened next with the French colonists in this area goes a little like this. France doubled down on its efforts to build a North American colony to rival the size of England's, concentrating its efforts in the New France-Quebec region. The French settlements in the Maritimes were pretty much on their own, where, with extensive support from the First Nations people, they established a bit of fishing and a fur trade to help eke out an existence. But because they were still technically a French colony, the settlements in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia were caught in the crossfire between New France colonists' ongoing conflict with the British Atlantic colony of New England. These conflicts would more or less come to be lumped under the title of the Seven Years' War. In the latter half of the 18th century, France and Britain were struggling for supremacy on a global level, which also involved their land claims and colonies in North America. Equally implicated were the First Nations groups in the Wabanaki Confederacy. When the French forts began to fall to British colonial forces, the British colonists turned their eyes to First Nations territory. I talked in the second Small Town Spooky episode featuring Edmonton about how, whether First Nations groups were allying with, assisting colonists, or simply tolerating them, the dynamic was still complicated. An influx of white settlers on the land that First Nations had traditionally stewarded, living off of natural resources and creating sustainable patterns of hunting, fishing, and farming, put a strain on the environment that made it difficult for everyone to get what they needed to survive. More people meant more destruction, whether intentional or consequential, of food sources and other resources. Add to that the very real, very violent encroachment of white settlers on land where First Nations people hunted, lived, and farmed, and you get a sense of why certain First Nations groups treated with French colonists in order to broker alliances and support in fending off British settlers' attempt to claim land. The British were successful in their defeat of the French in Canada in the Maritimes, though elsewhere on the continent is another story. The British imprisoned or expelled thousands of self-identified Acadiens, French colonists living in the Maritimes, from their settlements, creating a diaspora that sent them to different northern and southern regions of North America or back to France. If you remember me mentioning that Italian navigator Giovanni da Verenzano in the last episode of Small Town Spooky, we have him to thank for the term Arcadia or Acadia, which is how he designated the region of Atlantic Coast near Delaware. Over the next 20 years, British colonists were granted land in the Atlantic colonies that had formerly been occupied by the Acadiennes, or French colonists, some invited by Crown representatives, and others fleeing from the British colonies which had fallen to the American Revolution. Around 1760, the British Crown also negotiated a treaty with the Wabanaki Confederacy. This was, in essence, a renegotiation of terms that the First Nations groups had already established with the French colonists in the 1720s, which, rather than a series of structured agreements documented like the numbered treaties I talked about in the Unearthing Edmonton episode, these were more like verbal agreements and were recorded post-negotiation by the Crown. I'm sure I don't have to explain the kind of problem that could present when you have one group relying on what was said but not recorded at a meeting and another group who wrote down their version of what was said after the fact and are treating it like an objective record. This initial series of treaties is often referred to as the Peace and Friendship Treaty, with the latter treaties being included in what is sometimes referred to as the Covenant Chain of Treaties, made between the First Nations and the British Crown, and covering parts of the Canadian Maritimes and the New England area. There is far more about the treaties that I can cover here, but suffice it to say that one of the salient points is that the treaties did not cede traditional First Nations territory to colonial settlers. It granted them leave to occupy it. The development of the Canadian government and the imperial policies implemented by the British Crown in their North American colonies is pretty standard from there. Outright campaigns of disenfranchisement, disinformation, and flat-out circumvention by white settlers led to an increasing winnowing of the land that was safe for First Nations people to exist on. This passage from Teaching About the Mi'kmaq sums it up better than I could. sanctioned appropriation, community displacement, and the contamination of land, as well as the destruction of ancestral sites across the region. Alongside land alienation was the growth and strengthening of the concept of private property and other western concepts of land management, which inevitably impacted the vast majority of land areas regardless of ownership. Importantly, one must remember that land is about a great deal sustenance. Places anchor memories, ceremonies, the burial of the dead, and the evidence of past events and experiences. As land, habitats, and species are lost, so too are the specific cultural are close catching the cloth of your jacket you walk through the woods following the trail trying not to catch your foot on the roots exposed by years of travelers wearing down the dirt on the path the birds call to one another overhead while a squirrel chatters on a branch below what do they say in the distance you can hear the steady trickling of the stream Underneath the buzzing of the bugs and the sigh of the breeze, you think you might hear the soft hush of the ocean lapping at the shore. The forest has its own language and its own life. Some 83% of New Brunswick's total surface area is forested. The Mi'kmaq have many legends about the dense forests, and one recounts how Glooskap, the mythical superhuman being, son of the creator and cultural hero, received as visitors seven young warriors from neighboring First Nations groups. One young man was so enamored of the area that he expressed a wish to stay there forever and live for a long time, to which Glooskap responded by directing Giuk, Earthquake, a personification of the natural phenomenon, to stand the young warrior up in the earth and transform him into a cedar tree. Legend has it that shortly thereafter, the wind blowing through the warrior-turned-tree's boughs scattered cedar branches and seeds all over the land, out of which grew all the cedar groves in the Maritimes. Peter Lewis Paul, a Wolstagog consultant toured the Harvard linguist Carl V. Teeter through the Wollostogog or St. John's River area and took oral histories, stories, and legends from Wollostogog elders born before 1900, which they collected in the book Tales from Maliseed Country. One story, told by Charles Laporte, was about a haunting experience in the woods of Tobique River some 110 kilometers or 70 miles northwest of Dungverin River and the Blackville area. In Laporte's Telling, which I've adapted here, a young man was recently married and had a desire to take his wife hunting in the woods. They packed their canoe and set their course, heading down the river for the place where they would overwinter. When they arrived, the man set his trap out in lines by the stream for mink, The air was growing colder, with a little snow falling from the sky. As his wife prepared their camp, the man's next task was to prepare his bear traps, which took some doing, since the entire contraption consisted of an inner trap and an exterior ring of ten hardwood logs. It was cold and growing dark, and the man was rushing to get it done. Before he left the traps, he took one last look and decided he'd done some shoddy work setting up the bear trap. He sidled inside to adjust the bait inside the trap and... SNAP! When he moved the meat, the trap snapped shut and nearly cleaved him right in two. The man avoided injury, but he was now caught in the trap himself. He couldn't get free, and his wife was off at their camp, too far away to call for help. The sun had gone down when the woman saw her husband approaching the camp. He was carrying firewood, which he left for her before returning with water. But oddly, he didn't say a single word. He would only stare, and when she spoke to him, he wouldn't answer. They spent the entire winter together at the camp. The woman's husband checked the traps, skinned the game, repaired her canoe, brought firewood and water. But he said very little, and something about him was strange. On their last day at the camp, the man brought his wife the paddles for their canoe. He instructed her to gather whatever she wanted and load it into the vessel. She made a neat pile of everything they had collected, all the furs and skins her husband had brought her. The next morning, her husband asked if she was ready to leave, and she told him she was. He gave her a paddle and instructed her to get into the canoe. She did as he asked, and waited patiently for him to join her. You alone are leaving, he told her instead. I am staying here. Please, return to our village and when you come back, give me a proper burial. A shiver went down the woman's spine. A burial? She looked at her husband's face, which had appeared so distant from that first day some months ago when they'd made camp, and he'd returned from setting traps. "'I was caught in my own trap, and my body is still there,' the ghost told her. "'What do you mean?' cried his wife. "'You have been with me in our camp this past winter.'" The ghost bowed his head, sorrow etched across his features, which were fading rapidly. This winter, it was my spirit, not me, that has been helping you. I was given leave to watch over you for a time. Please, come back and bury me. As the vision of the man faded away and her eyes blurred with tears, the woman pushed off from the banks of the river, heading for home in the canoe she had packed with the last gifts her husband had brought her. In the early 1800s, Napoleon Bonaparte's naval blockade on Britain forced the Crown to look for lumber outside of Europe. They looked westward to the colonies they'd constructed in North America, with New Brunswick being their main target. The extensive riverways made it easier to move wood from the interior to the seaports on the Atlantic, and the proliferation of pine, spruce, and hemlock fell quickly to loggers, who rerouted them to hastily erected sawmills. Shipyards on the major rivers and on the coast constructed boats almost as quickly as they received wood for shipment abroad. Colonial settlers with farm plots capitalized on the lumber trade in the early 1800s by working during their off season. Mi'kmaq and other First Nations were either displaced by the incoming colonial settlers or equipped with the rudimentary tools to participate in farming or the lumber trade and earn a living as the Crown later, the Canadian government saw fit. Approaching the mid-1800s, though, extensive forest clearing required that lumber companies move into more remote, inaccessible areas, meaning that they needed the upfront capital to pay for clearing streams of any rocky blockades to floating lumber via the inland waterways. The Crown was intervening too, setting tighter regulation, and the trade was yielding less profit and becoming more competitive. Rich, established companies capitalized on the lumber trade since they were equipped to buy licenses, contract lumber gangs, and erect larger, more efficient sawmills with access to proprietary ships and trains to transport their product. In the 1840s, rich, well-connected Europeans, many of them Scottish, monopolized the lumber industry in northeastern New Brunswick. After 1870, the railroad system creeping further and further over the continent enabled more expedient and voluminous shipments of logs to reach the ocean. The logging industry in the Maritimes wouldn't last. At the close of the 19th century, foreign tariffs, recessions, and an emerging lumber trade on the Pacific coast combined with the disintegration of the wooden shipbuilding industry and decades of wasteful lumber harvesting to create a shortage of trees and demand for them that taint New Brunswick's timber trade. But at its peak, the logging industry was a driver of the economy and the migration of colonial settlers. Since the work was seasonal, beginning in the fall when the farmers were storing the last of the harvest and preparing their plots to overwinter, the French, Scots, Irish, British, and even some Yankees from America would long haul up to northern, upper Canada, or stream down east to the coast to pick up work in the New Brunswick and Nova Scotia regions. The trees were felled through the autumn by the axemen. The skidding gangs came next with their horses to pull the logs from the woods, with the trails hacked out by axes ahead. It was dangerous, incredibly physical work that could kill a man through injury, exposure to the elements, or freak accident. Getting horses to long haul enormous tree trunks over rugged terrain was a skill in itself and a bucking horse could be just as dangerous as an oversized branch falling from a felled tree. Each could easily result in a broken leg, or worse, which in the middle of the wilderness could spell disaster, or end a life. Lumber gang teamsters hauled through the winter, dragging their great loads through the interior to the lakes and frozen rivers, preparing to ship them to the coast as soon as spring thaw would allow hauling sleds and snow made the process somewhat easier for as dangerous as the cold and ice could be. Imagine steering two horses lashed to a two-ton sled carrying 30 logs, that's about 18 tons more, down a snow-covered hill, keeping up a steady speed so that the weight of the load won't crush the horses to death before you make it to the bottom. Through the spring season, lumberjacks drove the logs downriver to sawmills for processing and to be loaded on vessels that would ferry them to ships waiting on the coast. They used a variety of implements that included poles and corked drive boots, with studded soles that allowed them to maintain a grip while walking over logs. These boots were a logger's pride, worn at calf height. Loggers who drowned would be buried, and his boots would be nailed up to mark his grave. The men would use the boots in bar brawls to puncture their opponents' skin, leaving marks that came to be called loggers' smallpox. These were rough men, sometimes hard scrabble or thrill seeking daredevils, who traveled in large groups and descended on communities and their establishments, usually a local tavern of sorts, and lived in temporary camps made of rough shanties. As Donald McKay writes, Brigades of tough, healthy men cooped up all winter in such remote camps could make roaring nuisances of themselves when they came down on the spring log drives and fought with rival lumber gangs. I'm surprised HBO hasn't financed a six-season series about this yet. Dungarvan River is a tributary of the larger Mermeshi, the name for which may come from a European butchering of the Montagna First Nation words Naisimu Asi, which mean Mi'gmaul land. The Mi'kmaq called it Lusaguchich, which means goodly little river. Dungarvan takes its name from a river in Ireland. The name is derived from Irish Gaelic Dungarvan, which means the Fort of Garvan. According to local tradition in the New Brunswick settlement of Dungarvan, Michael Murphy, a native of Dungarvan, Ireland, was the one who originated the name, as he'd often shout I'll make Dungarvan shake during a particularly spirited dance. It's from this area that one of colonial New Brunswick's arguably most famous ghost stories comes. The tale of the Dungarvan whooper, locally pronounced Dungarvan hooper. The Dungarvan Hooper, as told in Donald McKay's The Lumberjacks, was taken from the recollection of Tom Pond, a resident of Fredericton who heard it in a lumber camp where he went to work at the age of 15, 15, after World War I. It goes about so. The way I heard it, it happened on the log drive in the spring. On the Dungarvan River, which feeds into the Miramichi, there's a place they call Hooper Springs and Hooper Landing. There's a big spring there and a big high landing, all overgrown with trees now. That's where the Dungarvan Hooper is supposed to have put in an appearance. There must have been something, because some of those old fellas weren't scared of anything. Bad old bastards, some of them. If the devil himself come along, they'd go and pull his tail. They didn't scare easy. After that drive, though, they got so they wouldn't even go in there. They were coming down on the drive and the spring before they'd had hard driving and had left some landings, logs piled high on the shore, so this time they had orders to put those logs into the water. But by this time the logs had all settled together and tipped over onto each other. They tented on the flats there, just above, and went to work on those landings and it was a hard slow drag because the logs were so tangled and so dangerous. Anyhow, there was this one fellow in the crew who was notorious for his blasphemy. Now to the old timers there was swearing and cussin', and then there was blasphemy. With blasphemy you cursed the Lord and you defied him. You had to be a pretty bad character to do that, but this fellow was an awful wicked man in this way. A lot of people didn't want to work with him. He was cranky and ugly and hard to get along with. They were having breakfast in the morning, and finally he threw down his plate. They had been working on that landing, and it was so bad the foreman had said, Watch it. This fellow said, I'll break that Jesus landing this morning, or I'll eat my breakfast in hell. He grabbed his peavey, and away he went. The foreman called to him, but he didn't pay any attention, and had just rolled off a few logs when the whole thing caved in. And of course four or five piles of logs were all tangled in together, and when one started... It tore all the rest of them out. Twenty-two-foot logs that had stood there the whole year, and when an old landing like that tumbled, a cloud of dust came up. When the dust began to settle, they looked out and saw the logs had filled the whole Dungarvan stream. An animal, or creature, had come out on those logs from the landing side. A long brown animal, with a great long tail, and a round head like a man, and short horns. It was the devil. He got to the other bank at terrific leaps, 20 feet or more, and disappeared into the woods. And they heard this awful, blood-curdling screech, which was this fellow's death whoop, you see. The devil was taking him away. They never did find him. The devil had come and got him to have his breakfast in hell. Pond shares that the hooper, or devil, was seen and heard many times after, and that he even encountered a logger who told of stopping his horses by the river to take a drink. This logger was an excellent horseman and had trained his teams well, but this particular day the horses were startled by something. They lifted their heads all at once, then were off to snorting, jumping, and thrushing, and when the man looked up, he saw the hooper perched on a log, As soon as his horses started up the racket, the Hooper leapt across the river to the bank and ran into the woods. The horses were so frantic, they broke up the man's wagon before he could calm them. He never stopped at that part of the river again. As with any good story, there are multiple versions of the Dungarvan Hooper, including poems, a stage play, and a song originally published in 1912. You can listen to a version by Mike Bravner on Spotify. The version in the song is quite a departure from the one where the devil makes a cameo, but it's also been repeated in oral folklore. In it, a young cook from an impoverished family travels from Ireland to Canada. In some versions, he's a young man named Ryan, who comes to the New World to send money home to his man. He works in a logging camp, feeding the men over long days of grueling work, and during a hard winter, there's a shortage of food. The men in the camp are beginning to starve. So the logging boss, seeing Ryan's young and tender body and knowing no one on this side of the world will miss him, cuts him up and adds Ryan to his own stew, which he then serves to the men of his camp. In other versions, Ryan is a headstrong, boorish boy who flaunts the cash he makes working in the camps. Or perhaps he's friendly and naive, a good boy who's neither a drinker nor a gambler, but being a little too trusting with the men of the camp shows them the earnings he'll be sending home. Either way, Ryan keeps his money close, in his shirt or a belt, and his covetous employer, the boss of the logging camp again, sees it peeking out one too many times. He conspires to kill Ryan and steal his earnings. The boss either covers up his crime or cuts in the other men of the camp if they help him to dispose of Ryan's body. They bury him in a shallow grave, and Ryan's spirit is laid to an uneasy rest. Thus begins a series of strange happenings that plague the camp. The men hear sounds and whoops in the night from the woods around them. It can only be the spirit of the young Irish cook, wailing as he wanders the dense forest in search of those who did him wrong. In some tellings, a Catholic priest is called in the ensuing years to exorcise the forest and bless the place where Ryan was killed. But to this day, the ghostly cries can still be heard by those unwary enough to wander into the woods of Dungarvan. I had a lot of fun researching this episode, probably because I was more focused on the ghost stories and local legends than the genocidal aspects of early colonial settlements in Canada. That is truly some rough stuff and it is ongoing. I always include the sources with links in my episode posts so that you can read more about it because it boggles the mind and there's always so much more than what I can fit into an episode. There are still ongoing legal battles being fought by Mi'kmaq First Nations with the Canadian government today. You may have heard about the fishermen who destroyed Mi'kmaq fishing boats and a lobster storage facility in Nova Scotia in retaliation for the government upholding treaty rights. And most recently, an internal government memo was leaked from the New Brunswick provincial body ordering employees to stop giving land acknowledgments. If you're Canadian and have the means, consider donating to a land-backed cause or contacting your local government representative telling them that this behaviour is really unacceptable when the federal government has positioned itself as committed to honouring the outcomes and calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. When I was researching this episode, I listened to a lot of Mi'kmaq music and I thought I'd share some playlists with you on the episode transcript. You can find the links in the episode post on the website. And if you haven't heard the cover of Blackbird, sung in Migumway by Emma Stevens, it's well worth listening to as well. I also don't want to overlook Lumberjack songs. Obviously, there's the perennial Canadian favorite The Log Driver's Waltz and the equally classic Monty Python Jam. But if you're interested in something a tad more historically accurate, you can check out the Wakami Whalers album, The Last of the White Pine Loggers. It's on Spotify and probably streaming on iTunes as well. A lot of the songs are actually narratives that describe the logging lifestyle from the early 19th century, and they're pretty catchy too. I did so much reading about the lumberjacks in the early 19th century in Canada, and it was truly wild, the things that they had to contend with just to get the lumber to the ocean where it could be shipped overseas. If you are interested in learning more about that, I highly recommend the book The Lumberjacks by Donald McKay. It is full of first-hand accounts of lumberjacks and goes further into how they harvested and hauled the logs from the interior to the coast, and also includes more lumberjack anecdotes. You have to imagine the kind of wild tales that would be shared around the campfire when there's nothing to do but eat camp food and swap stories. What I thought was most interesting about the Hooper stories was that there were two versions, one with the devil and one without, and in the Tom Pond version, McKay recorded that Pond suggested what the loggers saw could have been a cougar, which were apparently rare in New Brunswick but had been sighted around the river at least four times between 1908 and 1923. Cougars are extremely elusive animals, so it doesn't really surprise me that they're not often seen, and I know they do make wild noises. Some of the other accounts that I read about the Dungarvin Hooper suggested that maybe the noises were coming from owls in the area. And one thing that it made me think of too was coyotes and foxes. If you've never heard coyotes or foxes screaming, you should YouTube that right now. But I'll also include a link in the episode transcript. And if you have any of your own hometown scaries you want to share, or any legends about the Maritimes you know, send them in via email at smalltownspooky at gmail.com or on the socials at smalltownspooky. We're also coming up on Halloween so fast, and I have something really fun planned for Smalltown Spooky's first Halloween episode, so if you want to be a part of that, send me your best Halloween-related scary story and get it featured on the episode. Until next time, thanks for listening, and hope to spook you soon. Special thanks to the providers of the music for this episode. The title theme is taken from Brian Mathis' song, It's Not Hard to Get Lost, which is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0, as are the background songs Meekness, Brand New World, and Smoldering by Kai Engel, Running Waters and Autumn Sunset by Jason Shaw, and Clusticus the Mistaken by Dr. Turtle. Sailor's Lament by Jason Shaw and Jig of Slurs, Dublin Reel, Mary Blacksmith, The Mountain Road by Slanche are under a U.S. Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. All sound effects licensed under Creative Commons Zero, courtesy of freesounds.org.